Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and a person hoping, optimistic, a little fearful, but a person working towards a transformation of our food system. Um, this week, we've got two guests from the uh, John Hopkins Center for a Livable Future, and we're going to be talking with, uh, later in the program, we're going to be talking with Bob Martin, and he's deeply studied farm agriculture production in America. He currently serves as the program director of Food System Policies. And he's going to be talking about COVID, the impact on slaughterhouses, the impact on workers. So we'll be talking about that in the second half of the program. And right now we're joined by Sarah Goldman. She's also with the John Hopkins Center for a Livable Future. She's the program coordinator with the Food System Policy Program. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. Hey, thanks so much for having me here Yeah. Today. So one thing I saw in your June um, newsletter is that the American Public Health Association adopted a policy statement calling for a national moratorium on uh, new and expanding concentrated animal feeding operations. We've talked a lot about factory farming in terms of a moral problem, but a public health problem. Why is it a public yeah, health problem? Yeah, so... We were thrilled to see that the largest public health association of public health professionals in the U.S. Um, recognized the harms of confined animal feeding operations and actually called for a moratorium on new and expanding concentrated animal feeding operations. Um, the American Public Health Association, along with the Center for a Livable Future, we recognize that there are issues associated with CAFOs that are broader than moral issues. Uh, CAFOs harm the environment, they harm workers and surrounding communities. Um, The American Public Health Association actually has a really great definition of public health, and they say that public health promotes and protects the health of people and the communities where they live, um, where they learn, work, and play. And so I think this policy statement really recognizes the compounding effects of CAFOs on all aspects of health. Uh, Late in the program, when we talked about Martin, we talked a little bit about the history, because I think in uh, the popular imagination, we still sort of visualize a lot of small family farms, but there's been a huge consolidation. So can you just give us a picture of, you know, what are CAFOs and how much of our food, how much of the bacon and sausage comes from CAFOs that Americans are eating? Yeah, so that's a really great question. Um, So the number of new concentrated animal feeding operations has actually increased over the past decade, bringing the total number of operations to over 20,000, according to data from the federal government, from the EPA. So that's about the same number of CAFO operations as the entire population in Northfield, Minnesota, where I went to college. Uh Um, From 2011 to 2017, the U.S. actually saw more than 1,400 new Um, large-scale concentrated animal feeding operations. And so that's an increase of over 8% over the past decade. And so I've been saying cheap food is not cheap, but what are are some of the consequences of these CAFO CAFO operations? Yeah, so that's a great question. There are um, a broad range of consequences that result from um, confined animal and industrial operations. Um, At Johns Hopkins, we are housed within the School of Public Health Um, So we think a lot about the negative health impacts for communities. Um, But I wanted to highlight here that CAFOs perpetuate environmental injustice. Research has revealed that CAFOs disproportionately impact economically distressed communities, 
and especially communities of color. And I have in the policy statement that the American Public Health Association released, it actually shows that CAFOs are often clustered in areas near low-income and non-white schools and community. Um, and a few of the negative health impacts that are associated with these large industrial operations include antibiotic resistance, respiratory issues, including asthma and community-acquired pneumonia, among others. Um, so there are some serious consequences to living near one of these operations. Yeah, so let's, uh, so, uh, so the, um, the American Public Health Association, what exactly um, is the American Public Health Association now calling for? Yeah, that's a great question. So the um, American Public Health Association, as I mentioned previously, is the largest association of public health practitioners in the country. So it brings together um, folks who are working in all different aspects of public health. But this specific policy statement that was passed in November of um, 2019 calls for a precautionary moratorium on new and expanding operations. Um, And there are kind of two key pieces to this statement, the first of which is the statement calls for additional um, research into the attendant risks that these operations pose um, on individuals and communities, but also there are 12 specific action steps that are um, outlined in the statement, which are really concrete steps that need to be taken so that the public health consequences of large concentrated feeding operations um, don't affect communities and workers and other um, other individuals. Let's talk a little bit about these actions. So the first action step is requiring the end of antibiotic use in healthy animals. And we've said a lot of like 80% of the antibiotics used in America are now used on animal agriculture. Um, why is that a problem? Yeah. So if you just think about that, that is a, a wild number that 80% of the antibiotics uh, that are produced are not going to treat infection in humans, but are instead going often as a therapeutic use in animals. So it's a preventative measure so that animals, when they're housed together in these really confined, um, densely populated operations, um, are not getting sick because this isn't a natural way for animals um, to be raised. And so often farmers um, use antibiotics as a pre- antibiotics as a preventative me- measure, and that's why you see such a high percentage of utilization um, in the United States. But this specific recommendation that's elaborated on in um, the policy brief that the Center for a Livable Future released last month um, really looks at this problem from a national, um, an international perspective. So in 2000 and um, 17, the World Health Organization released recommendations that producers stop using antibiotics in healthy animals. And so we believe, and as the American Public Health Association um, policy statement calls for, that um, healthy animals should not be treated with antibiotics. And so we'd like to see the U.S. come into compliance with those um, World Health Organization recommendations. And we'd like to see an overall reduction in the use of all classes of medically important antibiotics in food animal production. You know, when I think of our um, mythology or archetypes, I must, we have the archetype of we have these small family farms. But we also think of America almost as a leader in some of these areas. But are we leading in terms of uh, rationality around antibiotic use in our farm system, or is, or are, where are, the, are other countries actually more of a, a leader in this area? 
Yeah, so I think that's that's a good um, point to bring up. There are other countries who are definitely further ahead uh, than we are, but what we're really, really focused on is getting US, the U.S. on track with these World Health Organization recommendations. We see these as a leading, um, really well-researched and thorough recommendations, and we'd love to see um, the complete restriction of the use of antibiotics for growth promotion and preempt, preemptive disease pre- prevention on farms in the United States. Right. Um, and we believe that this is achievable. Yeah. Uh, now, so there's a total of 12 action steps. So you want to talk briefly about what the second ac- action step is? is Requiring the end of CAFO exemptions under C-E-R-C-L-A? <laughs> sure. Yeah. So um, this is a mouthful of acronyms, um, but the Comprehensive Environmental Response Compensation and Liability Act which is often referred to as CERCLA, um, as well as the Emergency Planning and Community Right to Know Act, which is known as EPCRA. So as you can see through their acronyms, they're sort of a package. But these mm-hmm. um, two acts require reporting and of release of hazardous substances um, that meet or exceed quantities, and there's a lot of um, regulatory jargon in there. But... Um, the important point here is that there have been a suite of actions that have really um, decreased the effectiveness of these policies. Um, recently, Congress passed the Farm Act, which exempts air emissions from animal waste um, on a farm to be reported under CERCLA. And under EPCRA, um, the EPA created an exemption that allowed for air emissions from foreign animal waste to not be um, a reportable emission. So right. we really like to see these rules reversed because we think that and know through research that um, that emissions from confined animal feeding operations have a real impact on communities. And, and yeah. we'd like to see there, there's that a great, get reported. There's a great movie out there called The Right to Harm, and it tells the stories of people who've lived in these communities um, for generations. And then a large factory farm comes in, and they can't breathe. Their property values go down to nothing, and there's no compensation for them. There's there's nothing. The, um, the and some of the so the, so the other action statement is is to um, require these CAFOs to follow the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act. Yeah. So some of these, it's kind of outrageous to see when you look at all the. Um, all of the recommendations, but also at the same time, I'm pretty optimistic because a lot of these actions can really be taken pretty quickly. They're, um, they could be done through executive orders um, or through agencies. So there is, although there are a lot of recommendations detailed in this statement, I think there's a lot of hope as well that we can achieve them. Yeah, I agree. So, um, and then, because uh, the, another thing that seemed pretty outrageous was the, um, the um, uh, uh, waste management subsidies for CAFOs? Yeah, so that's a huge issue and one that um, I've been thinking about and researching for a while. So right now, um, there's a really great grant program for farmers. It's called the Environmental Quality Incentives Program. And that program provides funding for farmers who want to implement conservation practices on their farm. It's a federal program, but administered at the state level, and it's funding for new projects that um, promote conservation. But part of that funding is a set-aside. So 50% of the equipped funding actually is reserved for livestock. And the, in 2016, the National Sustainable Agriculture 
um, did a great analysis of this program and found that 11% of this funding is actually going toward CAFO operations, which is a lot of money. Yeah. Um, and so what we'd like to see is that this funding is instead, you know, incentivizing regenerative practices, supporting farmers who are taking risks and innovating on their land. So, Sarah Goldman, we're going to take a break. You're with the Johns Hopkins Center for a Livable Future, and you're the program coordinator. We're talking about the uh, the um, how do we how do we stop CAFOs, and that the Public Health Association is now calling this a public health problem. We're going to take a break, and we'll be right back with Food Freedom Radio. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio, where we plant to nurse the seeds of change. I'm Laura Headland, and joining us by phone is Sarah Goldman. She's with the John Hopkins Center for a Livable Future. She's a senior program coordinator for the uh, Food System Policy Program. And moving the, uh, taking the issue of uh, CAFO or factory farms and thinking about it in terms of a public health the public health problems from water pollution to air pollution to um, to the antibiotic resistance and to actually the organization is calling for a national moratorium on CAFO operations. So tell us a little bit about um, the people involved in, um, in asking for this moratorium. Yeah, so I'd like to acknowledge, though I'm here as a representative of the Center for a Livable Future, there were a number of people involved in the development of um, this policy statement um, there were a number of American Public Health Association members, as well as other advocates who are really um, have really great and specialized knowledge in a number of the policy solutions that are put forth in our recommendations. And I did reach out to the Institute of Agriculture and Trade Policy in Minneapolis, uh, ben, uh, ben Livingston and Steve. Um, they wanted to know, I mean, with this moratorium, it can be so complex because there's so much federal regulation. And so that kind of reduces the likelihood of that the moratorium would be adopted by um, states or um, different counties. So have you guys been thinking about what type of political strategy um, to gain support for a national moratorium? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and I'm glad to hear from the Institute for of Agriculture and Trade Policy. Um, I think in response to that question, there are two points that I'd like to make. Um, the first one is that this is a really comprehensive plan, um, and all steps are important to ensuring that the public health is not jeopardized by CAFO operations. But the second is that uh, many of the policy action items outlined in the moratorium statement and the policy recommendations can be implemented each on their own. So each of these 12 action steps is an important piece of the puzzle, um, but on their own, they can be implemented as well. So there may be political feasibility for a few of the policy outlined in the statement and one specific um, state or county and others and, and other regions. And just tell us a little bit about um, what is the John Hopkins Center for a Livable Future? Yeah, so the Center for a Livable Future, we are based at the School of Public Health at Johns Hopkins University. And simply stated, we think holistically about the food system. And since our founding, we have passionately researched the public health implications of CAFOs. Um, We work with students, um, researchers, and educators in my role at the center Um, is to translate the great work of students and researchers into the federal, state, and local policy discussion. 
Cool. And so what about your personal background? How did you get interested in this? Yeah, so that's, that's a great question. Um, and I've actually always really been fascinated by agriculture and growing things. I had a huge garden um, growing up and at the age of 14 started working on um, an organic farm in, in Connecticut where I was raised. Um, but as I started to work on farms, um, it was a really pas- a really empowering experience for me. But as I started to learn more, and I actually worked as a translator um, at a migrant health clinic in, uh, in Connecticut, I realized that what had been so empowering to me um, and my experiences in agriculture weren't reflective of all food system stakeholders. And I began to see the exploitative side of the agricultural system. Um, so I was always really interested after that in learning and addressing root causes of inequities in the sector um, and actually went to Carleton College in Minnesota, and one of the inequities that I began to see pretty um, drastically was the accessibility of farming for younger generations. So I had the opportunity to work um, as the founder of a, of a farmer training program in southern Minnesota uh, for college students, and then after that, have continued to think about inequities in the food system as an Emerson Hunger Fellow, um, had the opportunity to explore racially equitable policies um, with the Indigenous Food and Agriculture Initiative, the National Farm to School Network. Um, and still today, um, I try to drive my food policy um, work through this lens of, um, of inequity and thinking about the implications of um, different production practices. One thing that's given me um, hope and um, optimism is this um, kind of, I've heard someone say we almost have to go back to go forward and really going back and understanding indigenous um, knowledge. Um, Water is life and the sacred nature of all life and plants and soil and the rich complexity. Has that type of, um, have you learned from your experiences um, with indigenous communities? Has that also informed your current work? Yeah, it certainly has. Um, but I think to to start to think about this question, I, I do want to acknowledge that I'm not Native, and um, it is important to also ask Native and farmer, Native farmers and ranchers and um, about about this question directly. I think for me, um, and I did a lot of research at the Indigenous Food and Agriculture Initiative, and I've learned that um, Farmers have been discriminated, native farmers have been discriminated against by the USDA um, for a really long time. And um, it's really important as we think about equitable policies that from their inception, we're thinking about and considering the environmental justice concerns and racial equity concerns and unique histories and perspectives of people of color and frame those policies so that they can, um, they can, address the specific needs of those communities. And that- I'd also um, encourage you to check out the Native American Agriculture Fund. They have really great resources as cool. well. Cool. And, and that's the action step 12 is to requiring um, environmental justice and equity issues are addressed um, in permitting decisions uh, regarding CAFOs. That's one of the uh, concrete action items. Yeah. So, um, you can see more on our on our webpage about this specific action, but um, there have been a lot of violations of Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, specifically when you're thinking about um, CAFO operations and how often communities of color um, are the ones most affected by 
these operations as they're um, disproportionately located in communities of color. So um, this is a, a huge issue and one that is not we don't take lightly and think needs to be addressed very soon as soon as possible. So Sarah Gold- Gold- Goldman, uh, tell us again how people can uh, reach out to you if they want, how they can read more on this issue. Yes, uh, it was great to, to chat with you all today. Um, you can learn more about the American Public Health Association's precautionary moratorium. I can find animal feeding operations by looking up the American Public Health Association. Um, I also work at the Center for a Livable Future, and we have outlined some great action steps to build on this policy statement. So you can look up the Center for a Livable Future and get in contact with me through that website. Well, I appreciate your time so much today, Sarah Goldman, and uh, um, we're going to be back. And when we come back, we're going to talk with Bob Martin. He's the food system policy. Talk about COVID and uh, meat. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio, where we plant and nourish the seeds of change. I'm Laura Hedlund, and joining us now by phone is Bob Martin. He's the Program Director of the Food System Policy with uh, John Hopkins Center for the Livable Future. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. Thank you, Laura. It's nice to be with you today. So um, you previously worked as the executive director of the Pew Commission on Industrial Farm Animal Production, and in that role you published a, uh, Putting Meat on the Table, Industrial Farm Animal Production in America. So you know a lot about farm animal production in America. So, <laughs> and, you know, in this current moment, we are in such a shocking sy- system, and there's so much that's visible right now. So just give us a, a, a quick picture. I mean, we, of, of, of who controls the meat supply in America? Well, it's uh, controlled by a few uh, companies that um, contract with producers uh, to produce animals that they then slaughter and then to market that product. They're uh, over the last 50 years, the really the entire system has changed, uh, where more and more. Um, of the supply is controlled by fewer and fewer companies. And um, about 99% of the broiler production, that's the chickens we raise for meat, is uh, produced under contract with the large companies, people like Purdue, Tyson, Mount Air, Sanderson Farms. Um, So there's really no competition. They control the the broiler production from uh, hatch to slaughter to marketing. Same things happen in the swine industry. It's about 65% uh, contract production now, with just a few companies, um, you know, control. <clears throat> excuse me, controlling that system. Um, beef cattle is still probably the most competitive um, aspect of, of uh, animal protein production, but the large companies uh, still control most of the slaughter in that sector as well. So you have four or five companies. Uh, controlling uh, anywhere from 65 to 85 percent of their production and slaughter, depending on the animal species being discussed. It's um, it's allowed them to control producers. It's allowed them to control the market. Um, there have been um, concerns about um, collusion between the poultry companies to fix prices, um, and so there's not. It's also created kind of an inflexible system a very rigid system that, that we saw, 
you know, what a shock like the COVID um, uh, virus could uh, could do to the system. Yeah, and so we're going to talk, spend most of the time on the show talking about that COVID, but just to back up a little bit, um, Willie Nelson's organization, FarmAid, has some wonderful um, stories and videos about the impact of contract farming and the impact of this system on farmers. And yet almost in the American pop- in our popular imagination, we still sort of visualize a bunch of small farmers. And yet with all this consolidation, it's, it's, uh, it's really hard. Yeah, it is really hard, and I'll tell you, Willie Nelson's group, Farm Aid, has done a tremendous job. They they came, they were kind of born in the farm crisis of the 1980s, mid-1980s, when there was a wave of bankruptcies and suicides, and and uh, producers, farmers, found it hard to talk about the, the problems they were facing, and so Farm Aid was established and generated a lot of um, support, um, you know, for farmers, but you make a very good point, Laura, in that the industrial food animal uh, structure, the food animal industry, has really kind of co-opted the image of the small family farmer. And it's because I think so many in America still identify, uh, you know, with with that rural um, image. Um, you know, the happy cows of California dairies producing milk when, in fact, you know, they, they show pictures of them out in verdant pastures and and you know widely spaced when in fact they're they're crowded you know side to side in these large operations stand on concrete if they're lucky maybe are moved um, to an area to lie down that's uh, sand and straw but they don't go out on pasture so it's really kind mm-hmm. of a smart marketing ploy by the large companies, uh, two of which now are foreign-owned. Um, right, Smithfield, Smithfield. Is, is owned by a large Chinese company called White House, and one of the major players in the production and slaughter industry in the United States, JBS, is a Brazilian company. Right, and so they're cutting down the rainforest in Brazil. So um, if, listeners of Food Freedom Radio, uh, Seward Co-op, Minneapolis Farmer's Market, actually knowing your farmer, <laughs> you know, we can make these connections ourselves, but we also want to move the entire system. Um, not we, we make our choice, but we can move the entire system. And with this COVID, what we... Uh, just what happened, uh, I think it's got a lot of people mad in that, you know, so many animals had to be killed, not to turn into food, but just to be buried because of the COVID situation. Can, can you tell us what happened? Sure. It, it was a tragic situation. And as I mentioned, the um, the way the system is set up, it's really kind of brittle. And if there's a disruption anywhere along the line, of the production system and slaughter system, it really has really these devastating consequences. So the current system operates um, more under an industrial theme than a farm theme in that it's, there's this theory that it's just in time production. You know, car companies, for example, don't want to have large inventories of parts on hand um, because it it's, hurts their income. It's a lot of money invested in an inventory that might not be used right away. So parts are delivered just in time to assemble the car. The same thing is happening with our slaughter system, that um, they're, they're run at a capacity to slaughter um, a, an expected number of animals that arrive a couple of days before slaughter. And when that is disrupted, when you can't, 
um, you know, slaughter those animals, it, it has ripple effects back up the system. And there's not, because of like a, a strong keep them moving throughput system, there's no capacity to house the animals if there's a disruption at the end. And so you see this tragic um, example of millions and millions of pigs being slaughtered and millions of, uh, not slaughtered, they're euthanized, they're gassed uh, and buried, and chickens the same way, you know, up to 20 million chickens in the eastern United States were were euthanized and buried. And it's it's because of this disruption at the end well, that sends shockwaves back up the system. Yeah, and that's, I mean... At a time, uh, it, 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 at a time when there was growing food insecurity, more uncertainty about our future, our system responded not by feeding people, but by killing animals and burying them. I mean, what does yeah. that say about the whole of the food system? Well, it it shows that it's really fragile, and um, you know, there's there's a theory. Um, that the more complex a system, when there's a shock to it, the more catastrophic the failure will be. And that's kind of what we saw with the disruption in the, in the production and slaughter system. Um, it's really, uh, you know, it, every 47 days, a new group of chickens are, are turned over. It's kind of staggered among producers, but they know that you know how many eggs are on set, how long it takes them to hatch, and and um, being placed in the contract facilities, contract growers, and then when they get to wait, and it's really it's really uh, an inhumane system for the animals, and and really a financial stress on producers, and then and then you like you said you have this strange you know outcome that. Uh, you know, shelves in the United States are empty, while the president of the United States deems slaughterhouse workers essential personnel, so Tyson's and JBS and Smithfield can not have any disruption of their exports of meat to China. I mean, it is, it's really an outrage just about every stage. Outrage is the right word. And do we have any idea on how many workers in, that work in slaughterhouses died from covid well, the last figure I saw was um, about 100 dead, um, and that doesn't sound like a lot, um, but they were all, well, and I think all uh, 135,000 uh, or 137,000 COVID deaths in the United States were uh, were unnecessary because we just weren't prepared for this, even though something like this has been predicted uh, for a while. Um, they're about... The the last statistic I saw from the Bureau of Labor Statistics is there are about 74,000 slaughterhouse workers. And as of about uh, two weeks ago, which is the most current statistic I've seen, um, about 28,000 slaughterhouse workers uh, became ill, and 100 of those died. Um, my guess is that they're that's underreported uh, by a significant number just because of the nature of reporting and the workforce uh, tend to be migrant or immigrant labor that 
uh, their sicknesses and their deaths don't always get reported appropriately. Yeah, and this is a question from um, Institute of Agriculture and Trade Policy, because um, several counties um, contend that they cannot share COVID infection date, data in meat packing and food processing plants because of health privacy laws. Um, don't such privacy laws have protection against public disclosure of individual health records? Um, so are meat, are meat companies doing enough to share information about the testing and the cases with meat packing workers? No, they're not. They could do a lot more. They could do more for testing. They could do more for uh, protection of workers. Uh, they could do more for tracing um, when workers are, are sick, uh, helping understand who they've come into contact with out in the community, in their families and beyond. And they could do more for treatment. Um, and the center where I work has, uh, has developed a um, kind of a policy statement on really what workers need, and it's, um, you know, tracing, treating, protecting, and uh, tra- uh, treatment. Yeah, and then um, the other question from um, the Institute of Agriculture and Trade Policy, people can get more information at them by going to iatp.org. But they point out that there's a major civil rights case being brought against the meatpacking companies, Tyson and JBS, about their treatment of workers during this crisis. Um, JBS runs a major pork uh, processing facility in Worthington and owns Pilgrim Pride Poultry, uh, which has several plans across the straits. Why is there a civil rights issue? Well, I, an overwhelming number of the uh, workers in slaughter facilities are uh, people of color, and it's, it is an appropriate action, I think, to protect uh, minority workers, uh, workers of color, and many of them are, are immigrant workers, and their rights uh, tend to not be um, protected as well as, as others. I think it's uh, – I'm aware of that of that effort. Um, it was just launched a couple of weeks ago. Um, and we support, we're not a, we're not a party to the, uh, to the civil rights action, but we support it. And uh, so I don't know I, the food system. If you had to describe the food system in 10 seconds, what would you describe it? How would you describe it? I would describe it as, um, very fragile, and susceptible to failure. That's an awfully scary thought. Yeah, and I, it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, we have the type of, of food system that um, really corporations want. I think that if we um, had more aggressive um, enforcement of the antitrust laws in the country, that you wouldn't have so many uh, or so few slaughter companies controlling so much of the market. Um, there was just a bill introduced, um, I think, this week in the, in the Congress that would require, and this is only for cattle purchases or cattle slaughter, require the, the meat slaughter companies to buy at least 50% of their daily slaughter from the cash market, meaning that they would have to go to, um, you know, the sale barn, the old sale barn system, and buy compete to buy the cattle, which in theory, would, you know, increase the price to the producer, right, if, if companies are bidding on it. Instead of, instead of locking a producer into kind of a debt structure with the contract system um, that doesn't really reward the producer, um, I think there's, <clears throat> there needs to be a move to a more regenerative system. I mean, when the, when the system was kind of split or bifurcated 
in the 60s where, you know, crop production was separated from animal production. Uh, it used to be that there was rotational cropping. Part of the rotation was a pasture component that would move, rotate in the, in the cropping system, and animals, animals would be a part of it. Well, you've got the Green Revolution in the 70s, and that escalated. Bob, we're going to need to take a break, and we'll come back. We'll be our last segment, and we'll talk more about what you see for the future and how we make it a regenerative. How do we how do we move both the policy and our whole system so that we can have kindness and rationality um, in the food system? So, uh, Bob Martin, a program director for the Food System Policy with John Hop- John Hopkins Center for a Livable Future. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio, where we plan to nourish the seeds of change. Um, with us is Bob Martin. He's the Program Director for Food System Policy at John Hopkins um, Center for a Livable Future. And, John, um, some researchers, including Rob Wallace, the author of Big Farms Make Big Flu, argue that the emergence of zoonotic diseases, including COVID, Ebola, swine flu, it's related to how humans have clear-cut nature. Is biodiversity important for human health as well as planet health? Yes, absolutely, Laura. There, uh, years ago, the father of organic agriculture, uh, a man named Sir Albert Howard, uh, wrote a book called An Agricultural Testament. And in that, his, the main theme was that the issue of soil, plant, animal, and human health is all one topic. And so it's all related. And the way we farm... Um, the extractive method of farming um, without regard for uh, nature and and natural processes has a consequence, and we're seeing that. And it's it's all part of the the system that um, requires um, large-scale animal operations because of, of consumption patterns and clearing forests and um, and raising just row crops, corn and soy, primarily to feed animals. And that's that's a system that really can't be sustained. And so we need some hope and urgency for the future. Tell us a little bit about your work in, in the food policy and the animal policy. You've got a, a, quite a deep background. So you want to review that background again? Sure. Well, the, the Pew Commission um, that I led had 28 28- recommendations to solve the problems of large-scale animal uh, operations in the areas of public health environment, animal welfare, and rural communities. And it's it's things like uh, stopping the non-therapeutic use of antibiotics in food animals, eliminating liquid waste management systems the, the, that are common in dairy and, and swine operations, increasing competition between companies that will improve um, producer prices from the marketplace. And there's a whole new, um, or maybe it's uh, revived um, thinking in agriculture that uh, is kind of under the uh, general label of uh, regenerative agriculture, that if you're concerned about building the soil and, and providing nutrients in a natural way, which is you know, through uh, animals being part of a crop rotation system, versus the extractive method now, which is 
uh, mined phosphorus rock or or uh, refined uh, nitrogen from gas, um, it's really better for the soil. And uh, there are people. It, it's really a growing movement. Uh, you know, including certainly in the Great Plains and and um, in Minnesota that. Mm-hmm really want to focus on soil health because, as Albert Howard said, soil, plant, animal, and human health, it's all one topic. It's all connected. And uh, the World Food Prize this this year is going to Dr. Ratan Law. So there is, seems to be some movement um, of a lot of people about moving towards honoring that, that vision of, doc, of Sir Howard Albert. Yeah, it's yeah. It, that was very encouraging to see. And you see... Um, you know, there's a, there's a man in North Dakota that's um, uh, Gabe, Brown? Gabe Brown, and he's he switched to a regenerative system, and and it's happening really more and more, and uh, there's more attention um, even by large companies like John Deere, for example, on on improving soil health. So I think it, I think there is reason for optimism. So we have only two minutes left. I really want to connect this to this whole COVID crisis and the moment that we're facing right now. Um, has COVID um, sort of uh, made people more aware of the fragility of the food system? Are we trying to get different ways of slaughterhousing? Um, wh- well, I think, Laura, that it's it's uh, kind of helped spark a debate. Um, it's It's gone out of the area of kind of geeks like me <laughs> and and people advocating for change. It's really now the general public's aware of this now. And so... I think that's a hopeful sign as well that um, we'll, there are steps we can take to make sure this doesn't happen again, both from a public health and medical side, but also from uh, the consumer food side. Yeah, because um, we could be farming in so many better ways. I mean, having hazelnuts with the pigs, going to back small regenerative farms, healthy foods. <laughs> um, you know, I, I would, down our last minute again, if people want more information, um, tell us about the website and how people can learn. Sure, they should go to uh, just Google Center for a Livable Future, and um, our comms team has put together an excellent website. It's easy to navigate. And we have four major programs at the center. The food policy program is one. Um, and as you might guess from an academic-based institution, we have lots of lots of good information there. But Center for a Livable Future. And, uh, again, another question from the IATP is, how do we gain the political strategy to really work across silos to build this um, momentum to stop um, current CAFOs and to transition to uh, um, overall to a, a, a regenerative system? Well, you know, there's, I think, uh, the strength of Iowa in the presidential race um, historically um, educated a lot of the Democratic presidential candidates this year. And uh, before he was running for president, Senator Cory Booker introduced a great bill called the Farm System Reform Act that addresses a lot of these issues with food animal production, concentration in the industry, and the disadvantage that uh, small producers have. And it's been introduced on the House side as well. Representative Ro Khanna from California has introduced it. Bob Martin, uh, Food System Policy with John Hopkins Center for a Liberal Future. I thank you so much for your time. We're going to have to have you back because I know there's so much we can talk about. But I thank you for your time, and I thank you for listening to Food Freedom Radio.